Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, 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 Jesse Billington. We got off to a fresh start and we're fresh off a chaotic weekend at the Silverstone Festival. I've been there with my reliable co-host, Ellie Mae Taylor. I shan't ask you how you are, but I will ask you what your favourite bit of the weekend was. I'm going to break it up into two. So I'll do sort of my favourite race and then my favourite sort of non-race moment. Okay. So in terms of the races, um, I found Thundercats on the Sunday. No, the you're Jaguar. thinking of the TV series, Big Cat Trophy. Thunder, Big it's, Cat Trophy, that's it. There's Thunder Sports and Big Thunder Cat Sports, Trophy. Thunder Sports, that's it. I knew I was getting, I should have checked them before I... And Thundercats, uh, I think, was a TV series, like cartoon series in the same line as He-Man, but... Yeah. I have That's... no idea. I'm so tired. Anyway, the big cat trophy, sorry. Um, mainly watching the Jaguar E-types race against each other. Um, I watched them go around Luffield and then go down Wellington? No. Luffield oh, through Woodcut, then National Pit Straight. Yeah. National Pit Straight, yeah. Um, a lot of sort of hairy moments at that kind of corner. And then my favourite non-race I think I know what yours is going to be which is also kind of mine but I'll leave it for you uh, and I will say that I had a chance to sit in an F1 car um, which was kind of that was on the Friday and it's kind of just started what then was a bonkers weekend yeah, that was sort of the Friday very much kicked off because we were there for all three days. We were quite lucky in that regard. And yeah, Friday was a bit hectic, settling in, finding out the lay of the land really for how the festival was going to run through the weekend. Saturday, I was tied up with work for Classic Car Weekly because I was there covering the event for them. And then Sunday, we sort of had the, we had the day to ourselves once again. And it was all a bit sort of chaotic and frenzied on the Sunday again with lots of racing and yeah certainly my favourite non-racing moment from the weekend has to have been the Midget and Sprite Club track parade I think it does the thing you were hinting at where we got to somehow ended up leading out the field of MG Midgets and Austin Healy Frog Ice Sprites um, around the circuit which meant that essentially we could sort of hang back leave a bit of a gap and then just absolutely Raz it down the straights, which was brilliant fun. And if you ever get chance to, if you ever have a card where you can join a club and you get the chance to attend an event at a major racing circuit, specifically Silverstone with their festival each year, do it because if you get the chance to do the track parade, it's sort of one of those few chances you'll ever get to drive your car around Silverstone. Not necessarily in anger, not necessarily racing, but it's just great fun. And you can't help but have a silly grin on your face as you sort of hang back coming through it would have been stowed to sort of get a good run down the hangar straight and then sort of absolutely tip it into club and then down into the Vale chicane and round onto the Hamilton straight and yeah you, you spend the entire time just sort of grinning going this is a bit silly I'm quite enjoying this it was the second time I went round the circuit that weekend um the first time being technically a, a five kilometer charity fun run that I did on the Friday evening in the wet wearing jean shorts because I forgot to pack my sports bag the night before. So running around the circuit in and of itself was quite weird, especially at sunset as you're sort of coming up the hangar straight under the bridge and there's sort of lovely pink dappled clouds in the sky. You're sort of going, well, this is a, this is a bit nuts. Um, so that was really good. And then obviously we had the, the sort of 
parade lap, which was yeah, just silly moments really, and um, yeah, great fun even in the rain. Yeah, I I have a video video of us as going down uh, the Hamilton Strait, and at the time, okay, we weren't like going really fast down it, but it felt like I don't know, it it felt what. 50 60 miles an hour about 30 40 but it felt a lot quicker i suppose because we were also on the inside line so we were right next to the the pit wall so we've got the wall rushing past we've got the roof down which accentuated with the wind coming through and you can hear the exhaust note bouncing off the wall as well and equally way they've now got the hotel there you're sort of very much hemmed in so you're sort of surrounded by the noise and the excitement of it all it was just just bonkers really it felt really not really fast, but it felt like we were going faster than when I then re-looked on my camera because <laughs> I filmed it and it looks like we're going about 10 miles an hour. It, yeah, it felt more exhilarating than it, than potentially the speedometer suggests otherwise. I'd say my favourite race from the weekend is a tough one to pick. Ooh, I want to go pre-66 touring cars because we watched those from the National Pit straight on the Sunday and it was a pretty action-packed race. We obviously had a friend of the podcast, Alex Brundle, racing in that with Chris Hoy as his second driver and they were out in the Brustang and they had an absolute whale of a time, a challenging race, lots of sort of fighting between the Mustangs and Falcons towards the front of the field. And it was all going fairly straightforwardly right up until the final few laps where I think it was the number 47 Mustang of Mike Whitaker. Um, blew its differential coming through cops and just sort of caked that part of the circuit in diff oil and grease um, which given the fact that it rained a little bit through the day as well also made it very slippy um, so he sort of skittered off into the gravel parked it up on the outside of cops to sort of await recovery and uh, one of the minis just had no braking or steering going into cops all of a sudden and sort of ploughed on into the gravel managed to swing around the stranded Mustang in the gravel and sort of bounce out the other side. And I was st- stood inside the catch fence at this point and sort of with my camera shooting away. And I just remember sort of watching that happen through the viewfinder of my camera and just sort of literally hitting the sort of shutter release button, just hearing it go. And then immediately sort of dropping it from my face once I've seen the mini's got now hitting sort of replay to look back at it, turning to the marshals and going, Ooh, and sort of doing that sort of international small sort of hand gesture and they go was it close and I'm going it was very close and they're going yeah I don't know what he was doing there there was double wave yellows through that section so yeah um but yeah it that was just a bit of a crazy moment. You've got the Mustangs, so the uh, wrestler racing Mustang in bright yellow that every time it comes off the throttle, sort of tip it in for cops, just spits of flames coming out of the exhaust. So that was really quite special. Neatly, anything that you watch at Silverstone as the sun is setting, go and stand. The best place to go and watch it, I maintain, is go and stand at the loop and watch essentially back down through sort of farm village abbey all that way and watch it back down the circuit and stare into the setting sun. You get every Everything bathed in this sort of gorgeous orangey pink light. The photographs look amazing. And we had a NASCAR parade come round, which sounded phenomenal. And then we had the uh, historic road sports series. So that was sort of sports cars from the late 40s right the way through to the late 60s, a real mix of cars. And I think there was a few uh, like exceptional groups going into it for the 70s and 80s as well. 
Uh, so you had a proper mixed field. So loads of cars that are easy to recognize for sort of non-motorsports fans, just sort of all road cars and stuff, sports coupes. Um, so it sounds incredible. You've got AC Cobras, Porsche 944s, uh, Lotus Europas, Elans, and just all manner of interesting cars going around. And yeah, in that light, with that sort of cacophony of noise, it was just perfect, I have to say. Yeah, so th- those would be sort of my highlights, certainly from the weekend. I know that you've got yours. We've come away with plenty of pictures and videos that will be appearing on our and the podcast social sort of media channels through the rest of the week. So make sure you've get, you've given everything a follow on Instagram and TikTok. I think they're going to be the premium places to go and find the content as it releases because we've got got TikToks planned. We've got Instagrams that are already up and out, and there's just yeah plenty more to come with those. So yeah, it's just obviously finding the time to do it we're trying to sort of get through it all because what I haven't been I left to get to yours to stay on a stay in your lounge on a on an airbed on Thursday and I didn't get back home till Monday so we've pretty much spoken to each other not through our phones but sort of like voice since from like Thursday to today which is we're um, recording on a Tuesday and so we spent so much time with each other and on the Monday um, I saw a TikTok of two friends that had been on holiday with each other and they're getting to the end of the holiday and they have nothing to talk about and it reminded me of when we were going home on the Sunday night and we just decided to try and name all the F1 champions and then we went from A to Z of whether we could name teams beginning from a to z and then we went for driver's surnames because i think we just run out of things to talk about by that time we'd sort of run out of typical conversation pieces because we'd spent the sort of three days together so we sort of you couldn't explain to someone what you saw because they were stood about sort of three foot to the right of you so they also saw it and i think we're also still just in a bit of a daze especially as to how sort of bonkers Sunday had been what with the track parade and the fact that because I'd sort of organised to bring my car along quite late I hadn't been given the appropriate parking pass to get in so this meant that to get in I sort of pulled up on the Sunday and went look this is the situation I'm looking to get some content done for work I'm an accredited journalist can you give us a hand and I said I've spoken to the club it's fine for for the club are more than happy for me to come in and bring the car they're sort of actively encouraging it they want me to be there they said we haven't got the club parking passes to give to you the next best thing we can give you that will give you guaranteed access is one of the driver's parking permits so they sort of give me this parking permit that's competitor's entry and they say that should pretty much get you in that will get you to park anywhere basically because the drivers were all over the place they shuffle between the paddocks on throughout the weekend their cars go everywhere so i'm like excellent thank you very much silverstone's accreditation team their customer service team brilliantly helpful i have to say at this point it's really good to give them a quick shout out because the amount of ridiculous requests that journalists like myself and all the others in the media office have throughout the weekend they've always got a perfect answer and they can never never put a foot wrong so thank you very much for this um so he slipped the parking permit into the windscreen and set off to the front gate and they were sort of they spot the we're allowed in wave us through and like i just need to get over the bridge that used to be bridge turn um to essentially get down to the infield and they said no no, no i'm afraid you're, you're gonna have to head all the way around um to the driver's bit i was like oh, okay fine so essentially drive 
around the circuit anti-clockwise. So we head down past the new Hilton Hotel, also a very useful cut through if you ever need to get to the media centre at Silverstone. Just head to the Hilton Hotel, fourth floor, go across the bridge, it takes you right over the start-finish line. Brilliant views. Um, so we go past the Hilton Hotel, the wrong way round uh, what have been club, and then sort of part the way up to the Hangar Strait and then over the bridge on the Hangar Strait, and then sort of we're just sort of in and free at that point. Um, and then sort of swing round towards village the loop and then just simply follow the circuit round from there to get to where i need to go and everything after that is fine um so yeah that was just a bit bonkers but it also meant that at the end of sunday when everyone was packing down and like they're expecting there's loads of drivers cars again shuffling around people are bobbing around all over the place we think oh let me see if we can try and get the midget into the pit lane at silverstone got a parking permit that allow us it'd be silly to not try so it's sort of sunsetting the sort of the pits are bathed in a glorious orange light so we sort of just hop in the car drive back round and drop down into the pit lane as used by formula one as seen on tv and just simply pull into a pit garage park next to like a 1940s alter f1 car and go right there we go that's perfect so we park next to an altar and then in front of us is i checked it later it was a cooper t51 bobtail it's like excellent hop out get a few shots and then sort of pull out and sort of have to weave our way through the pit lane traffic which at this point comprises of lolas there's the Leighton house f1 car being loaded onto a trailer there's a peugeot 90x endurance racer there's nascars being put away there's all sorts of chaos yeah, Williams are packing away a Mansell and Villeneuve pair of chassis and we're sort of just going, don't mind me just coming through here in my little 1970s sports car to just get some pictures for shits and giggles. So yeah, absolutely crackers weekend. I have to say, obviously, a lot of that comes with the privilege of being a journalist, but at the same time, Silverstone were brilliantly accommodating and put on a fantastic weekend. And then we stuck around to see McFly on the Sunday evening as well. So all's well we ends did. well in that regard as well. So yeah, plenty of fun and wouldn't change a damn thing really i'd say maybe made it a bit warmer don't particularly want to be buying hot chocolates to keep warm in august it was freezing the only time i took my coat off ended up being uh when we saw mcfly because they are my childhood band which now makes me feel quite old because it was their 20th anniversary of uh, the bands getting together so yeah, that wasn't... Maybe I'll change feeling so old. <laughs> yeah, weird seeing McFly at a classic car event as well, so where they're expecting the audience to be that little bit older. I think it says a lot in that regard that they're becoming sort of one of those classic archetypal bands. Less so certain about the Sugar Babes. I'd definitely say ABC falls into that category, but yeah, seeing McFly was pretty good. Anyway, you've not tuned into this podcast to hear us talk about the Silverstone Festival. That's not what we're here for. We are, in fact, here to talk about the Dutch Grand Prix because that was on over the weekend and we also kept an eye on that and have got plenty of details to dive into you from that one. Um, we'll kick off with our usual bit of what the hell has happened. And uh, Haas, literally after we recorded the preview for the Dutch Grand Prix, announced that they would be retaining Nico Hulkenberg and Kevin Magnussen for 2024. Gunter praised both drivers' work this season in helping to develop the car and just sort of give it a bit of progress. It's not hugely helped through their season, but it has kept them ahead of Alpha Tauri and Alpha Romeo on self top of my head. So it's not all too bad there. Do we think they've made the right choice with keeping these two drivers on? I think Hulkenberg certainly 
I maybe would have given Kevin Magnuson a bit more time. I don't know. It's it's tricky because obviously Haas aren't in a position where they're always going to be fighting for sort of the lower ends of the points. But I I guess the reason they're keeping Magnuson is the knowledge that he has, rather than maybe sort of the racing craft we've seen. I'm not sure. Yeah, Kevin's racecraft hasn't been quite as stellar as I think a lot of people would have liked this season. But certainly when it comes to helping and building a team around him, he's quite good at that. And helping to sort of solidify Haas as an entity is quite useful. But you'd like to think they've sort of managed that by now, given how, I don't say old they are as a team, but they've been around enough seasons. This is something mentioned in our mid-season review. They've been in since 2014. It's nine years of Haas now. So they've, they should know what they're doing by this point is half the argument. Um, I think I'm correct in saying 2014 anyway. Um, but yeah, definitely, if I was going to Steiner, I would have definitely kept Nico Hulkenberg. Maybe with Kevin Magnussen, I would have potentially seen if he was interested in heading back to IMSA or WEC. Um, and looked at some of the talent that's emerging in that junior driver's pool. There's a lot of good drivers that are coming up into F2 at the moment, and many of them are looking to try and get into a seat. Even if you bring in a fairly middling pay driver, people are going to look on you favourably if you've at least bought in a junior driver. I think there's been a bit of backlash against Haas keeping two of the older drivers on the grid in the in the team, especially in a sport where it's so tight to get into. I would have potentially looked at if Alfa Romeo aren't going to offer Porsche a seat, maybe thrown a sort of an invitation his way to perhaps do an FP1 drive and come get to meet the team and stuff. Um, other names that I'd probably be looking at, maybe using your Ferrari engine links, looked at an Oli Behrman and Arthur Leclerc for once the F2 season is a bit more wrapped up post-Monza, offer them an FP1 drive as well, just to see if they're interested and equally gauge what their talent is like in an FP, F1 car. I think that would have been the way I'd have been looking at things. I don't think I would have signed the deal quite so soon. But that's not the big news that came out of the weekend. Daniel Ricciardo broke a metacarpal in a shunt in FP2, uh, suffered a bit of a lack of a front end, locked up and ploughed straight on in turn three. He really had the choice of hitting Oscar Piastri, who had had a bit of a swapper going through the bank turn three or hitting the barriers. In the end, he sort of tried and got lucky to hit the barriers but it was the tv footage doesn't show the actual speed at which it happened he was fighting it until the very last minute and didn't get his hands off the wheel in time so that's where the snap comes from as the wheels sort of contact the barriers and spin the steering wheel around and it simply smashes into his right hand wasn't it yeah his right hand and sort of broke one of the bones actually within it sort of very much more towards his wrist so um not great for him. He's been off and already had surgery from the same chap who did Lance Stroll's cycling injury at the start of the season. The um, motorcycling doctor, something near, I think his name is or something. Um, and I need to check that one. But regardless, seems to be a fantastic doctor because he at least got Lance Stroll back in the car for the Bahrain. Um, the general consensus is it's going to be at least four weeks before... Uh, Ricardo's back and well so certainly for Monza we'll be seeing his replacement who is Liam Lawson he's got a bit of a gap in the Super Formula calendar at the moment which is a season that's got mixed results in it we spoke about it in the preview to the Netherlands and um, he's 
he did all right for the weekend and then we'll get to the race in and of itself but it was a big ask for him this weekend coming in with the rain I think they're certainly easier race weekends to enter into certainly when you're part of a sort of race of teams where this is your big star driver's home race at least the attention isn't going to be all on you that weekend I think I going back to Daniel Ricciardo was obviously what it took Lance Strong two weeks yeah to get Recovered. I'm not calling Danny Rickold because he's only 34, but Lance Stroll is 10 years younger than him, so he kind of has age on his side in terms of recovery. In that Lance Stroll will be able to or should be able to recover quicker than Daniel Ricciardo in theory. So, I mean, how many weeks are there till Singapore? Um, good question. Flicks across to where he's got a calendar open somewhere with the F1 on it. So, this weekend we've got the Italian Grand Prix. We then have a week off, and then it's essentially from this point onwards, it's two. We've got essentially one week, two, two weeks and a bit until the Singapore Grand Prix. So, he might be back, that'd be pushing it, I'd say, but he might be back for the Japanese Grand Prix which is the weekend after that. Yeah, what? So he broke it on the Saturday, so that gives him, what, three weeks? It's not a lot of time, really. I guess it depends how well the surgery went, how well rehab goes. It depends on a lot of factors. And yeah, like you said, it really depends on that rehab, how quickly it heals. I think everything has been pinned as far as I'm aware. So it's all been pinned and bolted back together. So it's now structurally sound. You've just got to wait for the bones to fuse. And again, they're sports people. They're healthy people. They've got good dietitians. They've got physios. They should probably see a slight, it was a accelerated, but possibly a quicker return to form than the average human. So uh, it's time will tell but at the, this point in time as of recording Liam Lawson has been booked in to drive the Alpha Tauri at Monza which uh, Alpha Tauris go well at Monza and uh, so do Toro Rosso's okay. so do Minardi's so we'll wait and see what happens there could you think- imagine the scenes if Liam Lawson one in an Alpha Tauri, which means Max Verstappen can't overtake Sebastian Vettel's record of winning nine races in a row. Liam Lawson, as a rookie, wins at the team where Sebastian Vettel won for the first time as a rookie. There's saving Sebastian Vettel's record. There is a nice parallel to it I think we can agree and it was definitely something we'll talk about possibly tomorrow we'll get Timo's opinion on it when we come to do the preview to the Italian Grand Prix but you, there's, there's a nice little pattern emerging there that'd be quite nice to see I think we can definitely agree on that one it would be amusing it would be mental yeah the only person to win it outside of win a race outside of Red Bull this year comes from the Red Bull junior team <laughs> The rookie yeah. in his second race. Yeah, it just it would also be a huge turnaround for Liam Lawson's luck, which seems to be pretty hit and miss these days. More miss than anything, especially with his last incident at, um, ooh, I can't remember what circuit they were last at for Super Formula, but it wasn't great. He spun through sort of one of the early turns and uh, 
collected a bunch of cars. Wasn't his finest. But anyway, um, qualifying. Williams showed some real form with Albon and Sargent getting into Q3. Sargent, the first American to qualify in the top 10 since Michael Andretti at the Italian Grand Prix in 1993 when he started in P7. Scott Speed, I think, was the most recent F1 driver from the States and he had a higher starting place of 11th at the 2006 GP. So we're really seeing this pickup in form from Williams. But more concerningly, they still don't know where it's come from, which for this season is fine. You've got a good car, fine. But how do you recreate that for next season is the big question. I don't know. And I don't think they know how to either. <laughs> this is what this is something that both Alex and um, James Val said across the weekend was the fact that, yeah, we found we've got a really good car and we're actually sort of competitive enough to really have aims for P6. But the problem is we're now also having to reverse engineer the car so we know what to do next year. Um, so the sort of engineering department is currently taking apart what they're putting together and going, okay, so we did this, 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 and this. Sort of like when you accident your way into making a really good dinner but at no point bothered to commit to memory what you actually made or how you made it. So it's going to be interesting to see the repeatability of this for certain. But I think regardless, Williams have to be the highlight of qualifying, surely. I mean, Alvin putting in that mega lap to get fourth. And I mean, despite Sargent's crash in Q3, the fact he's got into Q3 is pretty mega. I mean, when was the last time Williams both their drivers got into Q3? That is a good question. It's got to be before George Russell joined. Like, we're talking back in the days when it was Bottas and Stroll, I should think. Well, the only one I was thinking of is when Williams did really well last year at Hungary, didn't they? That was in free practice, so I don't know whether then the Tiffy then made it into... 2022 Hungarian Grand Prix. I don't. I I have a sneaking suspicion that I don't think they did. Uh, let's see. Qualifying last year, um, Albon 17th for Latifi 20th. It was in one of the free practice sessions that um, Latifi went fastest in the third session, and Albon. Uh, was third so you had the Williams in the top three in FP3 but they weren't able to replicate that in the qualifying yeah so you're probably right with Bottas Stroll which what that's 2015 2016 2017 working way through the big list of F1 data um boom, 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 boom. So Russell joined in 2019. Bottas and Stroll never teammates, actually. So uh, Stroll joined the team in 2017. And that was the last time when they were like a, a decent team. Um, when they had Felipe Massa alongside them as well. Or possibly even if you go to the season before that, where they were consistently in the points. 2016. Um, maybe at one of the races in 2016, you had both Williams inside the top 10. I don't know. It would have... Let's have a quick check. Uh, first race of the season, Australia. Felipe Massa, sixth. Bottas, 11th. So close. I think it's definitely going to have to be around 2016 then, given that that's what's, that's what's put in front of me as facts. There we go. Um, second race of 2016. Got Bottas, sixth, and Massa, seventh in qualifying. So 
we're certainly looking at about that 2016 period. I don't know off the top of my head. I don't the readers, the readers, listeners want to hear us research it this entire time. Mm-hmm. But the argument is that it's been quite some time, certainly over half a decade since Williams were able to get two cars into Q3. So this is a promising show of form, at least. Um, speaking of qualifying, or at least interesting shows of form, uh, Hamilton wasn't able to make the cut in Q2. Shock departure, really. Especially as he seemed to have the form over George across the weekend. George, however, would go on to bag P3. Or Pulpers up, yeah, P3 come qualifying, end of qualifying. So what do we think's up there? I'm not sure, really. Um, I feel like all I've just been saying is I don't know. <laughs> um there's been a few races this season, though, hasn't it? That Hamilton hasn't, or Russell haven't quite got it together for one reason or another, whether it's been them or the team, that they end up being out in sort of Q2, Q3, when really they should have been much higher up. I don't know. Obviously, sometimes it has been Mercedes putting them out on track at the wrong time. And others it has just in the drums, but I don't really have an answer for what's gone on, really. Yeah, it's it's so unusual to have this sort of weird flip-flopping disparity between the two drivers in qualifying and race. It seems to bounce between from one to the other. And just waiting for a bit of stability, really. This is a major concern with Mercedes at the moment is the fact that there isn't this stability. There isn't this predictability to what they do, whereas normally you know exactly how the Mercedes is going to behave. You know exactly how their team is going to perform. But for now, it's just at a loss for both the drivers and the team itself. Do you think this will end up becoming an issue when they're trying to develop the car? in that sometimes a setup seems to really work for one driver and it doesn't work for the other, which route do they then take in terms of development? Or do you think when it ends up just in general becoming a better car, they'll both just be able to be up there? I think previously they've gotten away with having just a very good base level car before developing it for either driver. And I think that's... And equally, I think it's helped previously that Bottas and Hamilton have a relatively similar driving style. So they've both been able to sort of make the most of developing the car in one direction, more specifically or likely to Hamilton as seasons have developed. You've never seen that sort of Bottas struggling with a car that's been developed for Hamilton. And equally, given the way George, certainly in 2020 when he came in, was able to immediately get a hold of that car and drive it within an inch of his life shows that his setup style isn't too different from Hamilton's. So I don't think we're going to see that sort of divergence as they go for sort of two different setups should the car ever get good. I think at the moment it's just a base level car seems to sort of swing from favouring one driver to the other and they aren't quite able to understand their new concept. Bear in mind, this is still a, their sort of side-podded car is still only as old as, I want to say Spain really, because obviously they unveiled it for Monaco, but you don't really get a lot of data from there. So you've only really had about six GPs to properly get hold of it, and everyone else has had all those Grand Prix before Spain. So it's yeah, it's a tricky one to get a full read on it. And I, th- I think by the end of the season, we'll have a more clear understanding of it. We've still got another nine races to go, which will give us a far broader scope of data to work off of. But yeah, something's amiss at Mercedes, and I think it's just a fact of they appear to be a bit far behind the pattern. And then equally, 
they had, like you said, they started late. So. Mm. They're late bloomers compared to where they should be. And I think possibly like last year, where we saw George Russell sort of dominate in Brazil, we could see a similar pattern a bit later on in the season where all of a sudden they come good. We could be looking at a Mercedes win in Brazil or Las Vegas, which is a weird one to say, but yeah, it could happen. So we'll wait and see what happens there. Um Verstappen obviously took pole, Norris second, Russell third, then obviously we've already mentioned Albon, a pretty immense fourth place. So sort of Verstappen with three of his friends sort of very much filling his wing mirrors going into turn one on Sunday. And the race started pretty typically. In fact, drivers were sort of looking forward to it coming to the weekend. There was reports of rain being off in the distance, but it was set to be a fairly dry race start. And um, as the drivers pulled onto the grid after their formation lap, the rain came down hard and it was very much a battle state on track on the slicks and it was a mad dash for wet or intermediate tires this is where the whole sort of interest of the the race really picks up obviously we have a huge amount of overtakes on track as certain drivers pit early we saw Perez seem to get almost the preferential pit stop treatment over Max where he was able to come in pit early and get onto those inters and opened up a huge gap but as soon as we saw Max on those tires Max was able to basically rush right up to the back of him and overtake him like he wasn't even there. So less promising for Perez, but he proved, um, yeah, with a few other mistakes peppering his weekend. But we'll kick off the discussion around the race with Ferrari, who balls up their pit stop as usual. No tyres ready when they brought in Charles Leclerc. Is this the tipping point for his confidence in the team? I think I asked a similar question in the preview, but I want to ask it to you as well. Obviously, a bit of early contact saw him lose a wing end plate, which was never fixed, and he suffered some floor damage. The team made the right call with pitting early and getting the wet weather tyres on eventually. But beyond that, there's very little positives to think about when it comes to Ferrari. But with Charles, is this his, is this his line in the sand? I think Ferrari have already done enough before this moment for this to be Charles's tipping point. Um, that man must have so much patience. Um, and I think that's probably because at the moment, if it is his tipping point, where does he go? I can't see another viable option at the moment. So I think I think this just means he just has to grin and bear it. And I think he that he just has to, I guess, turn around to sit and say to the team, get your act together. I think that's the only really viable option for him at the minute he just has to try and make this team work I mean I know that's not his job his job is being a driver not a team manager but what can you do yeah I think certainly some of his radio calls over the weekend and the way he's been talking to his engineer and the team suggests that he's stepping more towards the way that Carlos has acted with the team so far, which has been very direct, very sort of affirmative action, very much saying, no, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Very much how we saw Seb towards the end of his his Ferrari tenure as well, where he's going, if I've got this many laps to do, I've got this many laps already on the tyres. When do I next need to pit? You work it out. Will these tyres get to the end? Essentially laying out the bare maths for the team to put together. And I think we're 
we're approaching that point with Charles now as well, where he started getting quite, not to say short, but sort of beleaguered with his team and the radio calls they're putting out and the very basic mistakes they're making. I feel like we had this discussion with Ferrari about Zandvoort last year. We certainly had it about one of the teams where they essentially ballsed up, the, essentially marking out the point of where you tell your driver to come in so you know that you've got that time to bring the tyres in. It seemed to come as a surprise to the actual tyre mechanics that we're pitting, you're going to need to come out with the wet weather tyres. Something fell apart in the Ferrari communication. I think that eventually we're going to see this become a significant problem for them as a team. And equally, at the same time, this sort of speaks volumes for the pattern that Ferrari are good in one series at a time, or they're good at making road cars, they're not good at making Formula One cars. Their road cars are pretty decent at the moment. And equally, they're doing all right when it comes to endurance racing. Beyond that, in Formula One, they're struggling. It's yeah. just an exhausted pattern at this point. I think it's also leading to an exhausted pair of drivers, and we're not going to get the best of them for that point. No, you've got two very good drivers. And I think as well, you probably have a good car in Ferrari. It's just unlocking it every race making good strategies. It's almost like just going back to the basics. And someone's got a huge job on their hands to try and turn this Ferrari team around because it's a bit of a joke. It's a big ask, and I hope that eventually they get it sorted. I'm a Ferrari fan, and as long as I live, I want them to do well. But it is exhausting trying to support them, and it must be even more exhausting from the inside. And yeah, it's science has already had Audi come knocking on his door, going, "Yo, uh, you up uh, for 2025, 2026?" And he said, "I'm going to stick with Ferrari for a bit longer." And I think that's because Audi is a bit of an unknown entity at this point in time. But equally, at the same time, there is that constant allure of Ferrari. You you go to Ferrari because they are Ferrari. They are Formula One. And weekend coming, I won't talk about it too much because it will ruin the preview episode. But they've got a special livery lined up for Monza again, which worked really, really well for them last year. Um, just hoping they don't screw it up and they finally get their act together hopefully with Fred Vasseur now at the helm he will sort of go look Monza is where we're going to have to do something proper I cannot go another race weekend of looking like idiots and we'll have to see what they would pull out the bag I think but I also think Ferrari have got to stop looking at themselves as well we're Ferrari we can get anyone we can get any driver because at the moment I think if both of their drivers left I don't think they're gonna have a big name want to join them they won't have drivers queuing up around the block they'll be sort of back into that weird 80s slump of getting drivers but they won't be the big name drivers and yeah I can't think of which driver, if the opportunity came up, would move to Ferrari. Maybe Bottas. Maybe Joe. They'd literally have to go to Alfa Romeo and steal their drivers. I don't... Th- possibly Hulkenberg. I think Magnussen doesn't want that stress in his life. Hulkenberg might go for it. Hamilton and Russell wouldn't be leaving Mercedes. Verstappen and Perez certainly wouldn't be leaving Red Bull. 
Danny Rick and Yuki Sonoda. Yuki loves Alpha Tauri when it works, but I can't see him wanting to go to Ferrari. Danny Rick probably wouldn't want to do that either. He's tied to Red Bull at this point in time. Albon, as said, his heart now lies with Williams. And I don't maybe, think Sargent would take that on too soon in his career either. Maybe if Red Bull dropped Perez, that's the only viable option I can see of who would maybe want to join Ferrari. Yeah. Assuming Just, they do drop Perez, who they keep saying they won't drop. They're very, they're very firm in the fact that they won't drop Perez. So it, it must that's the thing. Ferrari have essentially backed themselves to a point where no one wants to join their team and other teams want their drivers. Like Red Bull must sit there every weekend looking at Charles Leclerc going, I wonder what you'd do if you put him in a good chassis. And we don't also want to look back on Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz's um, F1 journey and think, gosh, what if? Yeah. The, you know, the amount of talent that both those drivers have, it would be a shame to waste it. Yeah. Speaking of interesting new talent, though, uh, Liam Lawson outfinished Yuki Sonoda. Neither actually scored points, but it was important, uh, sort of good show from Lawson to put a stamp on his F1 career. I think this is definitely going to be the start of it. Um, with a pretty solid performance. It was a ropey weekend for Alpha Tower with Daniel's crash and then some less than perfect pit stops. There were a lot of fumbles from the team as a whole. But Liam did well to keep it on track mind. He had one spin but kept it out of the wall. Um, in those conditions, to have to deal with your first Grand Prix, that's good going. So do we think he's done enough this weekend to be a potential driver for next year? He's already signed on for Monza. Do we think he's got a contract with a little gap at the bottom for him to sign for 2024? I don't want to base his performance on just one race yet as look at De Vries last year. But I think to come in and only have FP3 to get used to the car and then go into qualifying in the race, he did a pretty good job. I mean, he did a mighty overtake on Charles Leclerc, yet kept it very clean and well thought out. I think... What perhaps helped him maybe is the Super Formula this year. So he's used to more of the the conditions we saw with the weather over the weekend. And we also have to remember this circuit is one of the most demanding circuits on a driver too. So to do a good job that he has done is, you know, kudos to him. But I don't want to get my hopes up yet or... Or give him sort of the limelight we gave De Vries, only for it to then him get a seat potentially next year or the year after, and it, and we've put you know too much pressure or too much hype and expectation on a driver for it to then end up a bit like De Vries and him be sort of kicked out midway through a season. Yeah, I don't want this thing to sort of leap forward for him and all of a sudden fall awry. I think it'd be much better if it's a, a steady process from here onwards. If he can replicate that performance in Monza, if he gets a chance to do it again in Singapore. So he's had the chance to do it at three very different circuits as well to show that he can replicate that ability. There's definitely a lot that's going to stand in his stead, something more so than when we had Nick DeVries come in. I think it's it's a bit of a 
ironic thing that he's sitting in the seat that Nick DeVries sat in and we're sort of talking about exactly the same situation happening pretty much a year to the week. And he's sort of going, oh, that's interesting. Um, we'll see how it pans out, I guess. Um, so, yeah. it's There's also, I guess, Alfretari had a seat available. Yeah. Well, because he obviously left, whilst this year at the minute, I can't see them unless Yuki moves or they decide to put one of um one of the Alphatari boys in the Red Bull seat or whatever, there isn't really a seat available in Alphatari at the minute. But maybe this really helps Red Bull to give them that option of, well, Perez isn't doing well. We're gonna just move up one of the Avataris and uh, Avatari drivers, and we we know that Liam Lawson can perform. Mm. Just sort of wait for that opportunity to come along a little more naturally than force it. Anyway, we'll see how that one pans out in the future for Liam Lawson. Williams, meanwhile, had a very strong weekend, so much so they weren't actually happy with Alex's final finishing position. They thought a sixth place was genuinely on the table. They still don't wholly understand how the car has made this much of a leap forward. We already mentioned this. Regardless, after strong, consistent pace in qualifying, they had a target of closer to Alex's qualifying position and a car that could have achieved that. However, against Alex's performance, what do we make of Logan's? It's a shame he crashed out in both qualifying and the race because he was doing a good job and obviously we can't we it's an unknown of how well he could have done. I think when we consider that Alex has been in F1 for a few years now, albeit he's had he's had time out. Albin is obviously undoubtedly the better driver, but you look at Sargent's results over this season and he's really not far off of Albin's race results most weekends, especially when Alex is getting points and, you know, the lower end of the points places are so competitive currently, Sargent's always been only sort of a couple of places behind him. I think as a rookie, he really isn't doing a bad job in a Williams, which we, we've mentioned previously is underdeveloped in terms of sort of their aero, their floor. I think he is really doing a better job than sort of some people are making out. Mm. I've read I've read a couple of articles where they're just sort of slating Sergeant. And I'm like, well, when you sort of end up breaking it down, he really hasn't been doing that badly, I don't think. He's not yeah, when you look at how close each weekend when he's sort of finished, when he comes home behind Alex. He's never really that far behind him, which suggests there's a good balance in the way the team are sort of structuring things and giving him the opportunity, certainly. They're not sort of absolutely shafting him when it comes to pit stop strategies. Those chances are coming and he's making the most of them. I think at the same time, he's still getting used to driving this level of performance single-seater. I don't think that we still... I still maintain that potentially we moved him up a little too early from Formula 2. Um, but he's... He's taken the ball by the horns and really made the most of the opportunity. He's not always had the rub of the green in that regard, but it's still been a fair performance from him. And I think this weekend he was very unfortunate. And a lot of people have suggested that maybe James Fowles was saving Logan's face when he said that, oh, he suffered a hydraulic issue and lost power steering when he was um, when he spun out in the race. And I'm like, oh, 
I don't think it's saving his face. I think that is a fairly realistic thing to have a failure on, and it certainly happens on other cars all the time. And is that the first time he's crashed out of a race? Oh, now you're asking the questions. Uh, 23 results so far. This is uh, the third, I believe. Fourth, even. This is the fourth time that he's DNF'd. I know a yeah. couple of them have been not due to crashing out. I can't remember him doing a... Australia, he was shunted into by Nick DeVries, I believe. Wasn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Nick DeVries punted him into the gravel in Australia, so that one's not truly his fault. Uh, the retirement in Canada, was that a crash or was that an en- a failure of some sort? That is oil leak, so something going wrong with the mm-hmm. car in Canada. Then the next one for Logan Sargent was Hungary. Um, what happened to him in Hungary? I feel like that was a slow problem as well that manifested itself. Overheating, so that was just essentially failing radiator. Um and then obviously we've seen him retire from Netherlands, which was a first proper crash. So even if you do attribute the crash to his own issue, that's the f- one of four times he's retired is that, and it's only four times out of what's now been um what thirteen rounds. Yeah. Yeah, but then minus Imola, it's a twelve, I think. Uh, no, it's thirteen because the list I've got here doesn't include Imola on it. Because we did 12 before the start of the the year, but as far as like, yeah, yeah, that doesn't have Emily listed. So, yeah, that is, yeah, yeah. that is, that is 13. Yeah, um, one, one out of 13 times to end your race due to your own fault, if is so, I think is, is pretty good odds. And in wet conditions, wet and- conditions are a challenging track, a track he struggled at last year in Formula Two as well. So, it wasn't like he's even had like a long period of time to get used to it. I think as well, this also means with Sergeant getting into Q3, the only people that haven't got into Q3 yet are obviously Nick DeVries, which he won't be getting into Q3 uh, anymore, Daniel Ricciardo, and um, Liam Lawson. Liam Lawson, yeah. It's literally just... Pardon? Has Dukey got into Q3 this season? Yeah, I believe he has. Uh, um, again, the podcast where we do live research. Um, yes, he yes, he uh has he was eighth in Azerbaijan uh, and ninth in Monaco. Ah, well, there we go. You're the one that keeps the big qualifying sort of spreadsheet. So they, there's your answer. So yeah. So yeah, two I, I, drivers are the ones that have done three races between them. It's literally just that seat that's. What's the game where you play where one chair and musical chairs? Musical chairs, yeah. It's yeah. just it's just that musical chair seat that hasn't got a Q three appearance yet. So yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's still mad to look at like the. I love the way that Wikipedia lays. It's such a weird tool to use Wikipedia, but I love the way it lays out its world driver standing sort of bit where you've got all the races and the positions. And obviously, Max's run is still pretty much solid 
gold. And as you sort of look through, you get all the yellow squares for all the points. And then as you work your way down, you just get the weird odd sort of double P2s of Norris and P8. Then you get another P10 where there's Gasly with a third place. And then even further down in 11th is Esteban Ockel with a third place as well. Yeah. Like he's the the lowest place we've got someone with a podium this week, this year, this year so far is 11th. That's not bad for we've got one two three four five six seven eight nine different podium sitters so it's not terrible no and um i mean i'll have to again it'll be one of those things i'll have to look up but it'll be interesting to see when the last season was where we had every single driver get into q3 Ooh, that'd be a lot of time spent on Excel, but it'd be interesting to know. But regardless, it sort of cements home the fact that Logan's not actually been doing as bad as the results would suggest. I think it just doesn't help that he doesn't have any points at the moment, so he's not been able to pull clear of the sort of championship standings of Lawson, Ricardo, De Vries, and sort of inch his way a little bit closer to... I mean, it would only take a few points to get to... Kevin Magnussen on two and Yuki Sonoda on three. Like that is, I think with the rest of the season still to come, perfectly achievable for Sargent, especially if the car keeps developing. It's a matter of time till he's essentially in a championship battle for 17th. Which if you can beat out Magnussen, a driver who was on pole last year for a sprint race admittedly, but also a driver with so many years experience, that's a, that's a pretty good thing to take away from the season. We'll move from Williams to Alpine, who had a lot to resolve through the summer break. And while Ocon's weekend wasn't perfect across a number of reasons, um, Gasly's very much paid off. Can we see the team coming back stronger? Or was this just Gasly thriving at a circuit where he's thrived before? Again, hard to say because Alpine have had such horrid luck this season. I think... Gasly, or even both drivers for that matter, should have both points based on their race performances, but bad luck just always seems to go their way when they're doing well. Um, I don't think we can say they're coming back stronger just yet. This is what the only race we've had since summer break, but I guess hopefully that break has reset the team and they can continue to have a better half of the season. Um I mean, they picked up 16 points whilst McLaren picked up eight. So they ended up doubling the points that McLaren have, which isn't bad, really. Hmm. It's not too bad. And yeah, again, as a team, they've come away with a good set of points. And Gasly earned it this weekend, I think. A lot of people sort of said, oh, do you think such and such really helped you gain your position? He said, look, I was within five seconds of Red Bull. I think any other team is also going to take that as pretty much a good sign if you can get within five seconds of that car, especially five seconds of Max Verstappen in that car. So, yeah, there's there's a good array of positives for the whole team to carry away from this weekend, equally enough to sort of rebuild the constitution of Pierre Gasly and give him a good run through the rest of the season. So you mentioned McLaren there, a decent run for Lando and Oscar, both with the car seeming to be a lot more comfortable to work with and better understood by the team and drivers alike. There's nothing really to nitpick from them for this weekend. Arguably, it could have been better, but it wasn't terrible. It certainly wasn't as terrible as their start of the season. It was just 
their new level of average. Okay, comparing it to the start of the season, you maybe not bad, but from their more recent events, I don't think this was really a good race for them at all. I mean, they did not have a good strategy with Lando at the start of the race. They pitted him too late and it hurt him. I mean, he qualified second and he came seventh. They really should have done better than that, I think. I mean, Hamilton was clearly faster than Norris too, despite Hamilton's messy qualifying. Hamilton ended up finishing higher. I, I just think they, they could have done much better. I think, yeah, they, they certainly could have done a lot better this weekend. I think maybe we still don't know quite what the strengths are in that McLaren as well, whether it is still just very much like Spa and Silverstone, the high-speed corners where you just sort of can tip it in and away it goes, or whether it's a sort of different beast. It really, we don't know so much, any a great deal about their setup for this weekend. Equally, yeah, they were split by the Williams of Albon. So again, if you're comparing it to the start of the season, if you've got the McLaren being split by the Williams, you're sort of like, oh. but then at this point, you they've given us performances that suggest they should have done better, I think is, is a fair argument to make, actually. Mercedes, though, they had a bit of a mess of a weekend. Uh, their Saturday, uh, well, mess of a Saturday, really, and their Sunday wasn't great either. Lewis was able to recover it, but with Russell, he very much said they pissed a good result into the wind. It was not helped by that puncture, but he was he was essentially on track for a podium there, and it just didn't happen, and he came home, obviously, with that puncture, but last of the runners. It's not... Yeah, they just had a bad weekend didn't they absolute stinker really for Mercedes yeah it just, just it's it's such a tricky one to try and call because had it not been for that puncture had they just had a few better things I think it might have panned out differently but it's so tricky to call otherwise you're just sort of having to hope that things were better but they weren't so you can only really judge them on what they've given us I think I mean, this is still very much a team, like we said earlier, learning about their car. Um, you know, obviously they realised they'd gone down the wrong path and they've tried to change that quite early on. But, you know, with this cost cap, Mercedes can't just throw everything at it and create a championship winning car quickly. I think this is a much slower process than sort of previous years. I mean. I'd say overall, maybe they haven't done badly to pick themselves up. You know, they've still been in podium fighting positions, but I think this weekend was just messy. They let the ball drop, which you do see time to time for Mercedes do. There's no real sort of answer for why it happened. They just do. Yeah, sometimes they just do drop the ball. It's annoying what they do as well because you it's one of those teams you certainly expect more from and better from. So those those dropped ball moments come more out of the blue and come as more of a surprise. It, uh, such an odd one. I, I really think it is one of those tricky questions to ever try and answer is why did that go wrong for Mercedes? Because it's always one of those things that has so many factors that go into it. The car 
is still, like we said earlier, a new concept. They don't necessarily know how well it's going to run in those conditions. They don't know quite what it's going to be like on the uniquely demanding circuit that is Zandvoort with the banking. They still don't truly understand their floor as they're developing it. And then you throw banked curves at it with different winds coming on the circuit. So it's it's such a tricky one to try and understand as to why it failed for Mercedes this weekend. But it did. Hopefully they're able to pick it up and go along to a slightly more straightforward circuit of Monza and sort of get back up there and put their cars back in the fight with both of them. But it, yeah, it's just unfortunate. Um so we'll move on to Aston Martin as we sort of round out our chatter actually about the race. Um, Aston Martin returned to the podium this weekend with Alonso P2. Given the huge disparity in performances between their drivers, how much longer can they go on fighting with one hand tied behind their back? Again, I don't have an answer. Um, I'll try to work out whether Lawrence Stroll will kick his son out of the team or not. Because you never ever hear ru- rumors coming from that team, do you? With other teams, you sort of it's always, oh, if that if that person isn't doing badly, you start then getting the rumors that they're going to be kicked out. I mean, like just look at Defries this season. You just don't get that out of that team. Yeah. So you're kind of you're going into it blindly. Of so, what are we going to do about your son? Because he doesn't really seem to have the heart to go racing sometimes. Yeah. Like even, even back as racing point under Lawrence's sort of ownership then, there was never that sort of rumour mill when it came to sort of seats and careers then either. It was always just a case of, oh, well, this is our team, by the way. There was never that sort of, oh, such and such is leaving or something. It always came from them that they were leaving. There was never sort of like it it leaked or like, oh, contract discussions. Even when it came to Seb, none of that leaked. That just came as a a surprise out of the blue. Seb made an Instagram account, then went live on it. Went, by the way, job done with me at Formula One, bye, and left. And the, the way they seem to do their contract is very interesting. But when it comes to Lance, it's certainly more different. And I think this is going to be a call that's made by Lance not by the team I think they're still forced away it goes and as well I was I was trying to think previously um, they've never really had a driver underperforming and that be the reason that they've left or been kicked out I mean it was what when Lawrence Stroll bought Force India and it became racing point obviously Ocon was kicked out for no real fault of its own it was just that he was uh stroll was going to obviously be become part of that team yeah and then it was what vettel was left ferrari and joined what then would become aston martin and they got rid of perez but it it just their contracts always seem to be quiet yeah it, it's it's always just such a quiet move when it comes to Aston Martin, but I think at the end of the day, when it comes to Lance, it won't be something that happens on the rumour mill. It won't be something that the team know about before it happens. It will come from Lance in much the same way that it came from Seb that he was leaving. It will come from Lance and it will be a message, a, a release from Lance going, 
I've decided to at this point call an end to my Formula One career. I'm going to be moving on to pastures new to try something else out. And that will be the end of that. I think the real question is when does Lance feel it's the right time to do that? Because I, I, I would argue he might do it at the end of this season. I think if Aston Martin had stayed consistently where they were at the start of the season with Fernando Alonso constantly getting podiums and Lance constantly just not being there. Barely being in the top 10 at times. Yeah. I think then it may have questions sort of may have been sort of being started, but because they've now fallen back, I think it's almost like a lifeline yeah, it's taken a bit of that pressure off of them, certainly from like Canada onwards, where you look at Spain, we can sort of give as possibly a bit of an outlier where Alonso finished seventh and Stroll finished weirdly ahead of him in sixth. But then Canada, Alonso was second and Stroll was ninth. And then obviously for Alonso, it's five, seven, nine, five part of my phone number um, but for Stroll it's 9, 14, 10, 9 and then all of a sudden Alonso gets back on the podium with a P2 and where's Lance? P11 and even when you look at the podiums the first three rounds of P3s for Alonso and then it's P6 retirement P4 the retirement admittedly was a mechanical failure on the car that was nothing down to Lance but P6 is pretty unforgivable if that was a Mercedes where that's happening and you've got your driver separated like that you'd be you'd be concerned Lance is not a new driver to the sport the P4 commendable in Australia but equally a lot of the other drivers have been wiped out there was no George Russell there was no Charles Leclerc Sergio was down in fifth with and Sainz was way back with a time penalty so it's hardly an easy one to measure it would we would be questioning it if it wasn't for the fact that Lance Stroll is the son of Lawrence, we would be questioning whether he's got a seat kind of a bit like how we look at Perez and Verstappen and the performance disparity between the two. Yeah. It it's exactly that setup. Like when you look at admittedly at the start of the season, it wasn't too bad, but there have been in fact all the way through it's not been too bad for Perez. When the points are on the table, he's been able to pull it back. For Bahrain, first, second. Saudi was obviously reversed. Australia, first, fifth. He didn't have a great qualifying, was able to bring it back there. Azerbaijan, first, second in Perez's favour. Miami, first, second in Max's favour. Monaco, a bit of an outlier because he didn't qualify well. And obviously, you can't overtake around Monaco, first, 16th. Spain, first, fourth. Uh, Canada first, sixth. So those are the only two, possibly including Britain and this weekend, where he's been a little bit off the pace. But even then, a first and fourth isn't too bad, especially when you look at the drivers that have gotten on the podium between you. This weekend only stings because there was that Alpine on the podium. Yeah. I, I think we're overly critical of what Perez has achieved, when in reality, he's a good 40 points are clear of Fernando Alonso and while admittedly you're, when your teammate is banging wins in nine times in a row you're not going to be able to catch that just simply because of the enormous points golf between second and first each weekend 
but he's way clear of Fernando Alonso and obviously nearly 100 points clear of fifth place Carlos Sainz. He's not even got a battle on for his position this championship. But with Stroll, if you go back and actually track his position across the year, Stroll, 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 uh, has been a sixth, so sixth in the standing, seventh, sixth, eighth, 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 ninth, ninth, ninth. So he sort of started all right and has then had a bit of a, a tumble down the order. He had an early early season battle with George Russell and then has just sort of started slowly slipping down where he's sort of come into problems as Lando Norris and the McLaren has gotten better. And that's when you look at it as raw data, when you look at it against the actual gap. It's a huge gulf that he's now got to face between Lando Norris and himself. Nearly 50, uh, nearly 25 points. Or over 25 points, rather. So it's... Yeah, he's now actually at risk of Gasly and Ocon catching him and possibly even Piastri at the rate they're going. He, as a team viewed completely objectively you can't afford to keep him no I think he knows Except that as well at the end of the day if that then affects where you are in the constructors you're potentially losing millions just to save a family argument yeah I mean if we make the argument that potentially if he'd scored an extra three points per race over the past 13 races gives him an extra, what's that, 19 points, isn't it? An extra 19 points to Aston Martin puts them um, 215 plus 19, can't do maths, it's too late in the evening, plus 19 puts them 21 points shy of Mercedes. Equally, at that point in time, Stroll would have been possibly taking points away from that Mercedes team. So, if it, if it'd been a little closer, Aston Martin could still be ahead of Mercedes in the standings. So, if you were working for Aston Martin and you were Lance Stroll's engineer, and you said, "Look, Lance, this is where I want you to be uh, for the rest of the season," where where do you sort of where do you want him to be coming in races? I want if we're going to assume that the Aston Martin is back to, compared to the rest of the field where it was at the start of the season, I want Lance to be coming in P5 or higher each weekend. I want to be pushing for a podium at some point in, this, in the tail end of this year as well. P5 and higher, I think, in that chassis as Lance Stroll, a driver who has talent and has capability to podium and certainly to win races. I, as his race engineer I'd be pushing to get there if I was his manager if I was his fitness coach working my socks off to try and get that because you can't expect anything else when you, the other guy in the identical chassis to you is banging out podiums weekend after weekend after weekend certainly through the first half of the year where'd you go? the difference between Alonso and Stroll at this point in time Alonso's on 168 points Stroll is on 47 over 100 that's 121 points clear 
the gap between Verstappen and Perez is that great. But again, they've been scoring in the positions where the gap between the points achieved each position is greater. Uh, Hamilton and Russell are just over 60 points apiece, 60 points difference. Even Norris and Piastri, 40 points difference there, 39 technically. Gasly and Ocon, a point separates them. Magnus and Hulkenberg, seven points separate them. Albon and Sargent, 15 points separate them. It's such a big gulf. And only when you remember that there is that sort of, obviously you go 25-18 and then 20, 25, what is it? 25-20-18 or something for the, I can't remember the point scoring card. I'm so tired. 25, yeah, 25-18-15, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're scoring first and second, that gulf is going to be huge regardless. But if you're scoring a third and fourth, that's a 15 and 12. That's only a three-point gap, not a eight-point gap, seven-point gap. I think that there is certainly an argument to be made that Lance Stroll is no longer fit for that seat and I, without a big kick, really ought to be leaving, looking at something else. If he wants to stick in racing, fine, but I don't think that denying Felipe Drogovic that seat for another season is the right move for as Aston Martin and... I don't think Lance really wants to be in it anymore. I don't think he does either. I mean, we joked in the preview about him wanting to go off and do international tennis, but if that's what he enjoys and that's what he finds he's good at, why not? Paul, could you imagine Lance Stroll and, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Alcatraz? Uh, Oh, Alcaraz. Uh, Alcaraz? Alcatraz. Alcatraz is the prison in... California. Alcaraz uh, against Alcaraz. Um, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. No, he like, does look he's... like Lance Stroll. Yeah. Yeah, it's Carlos Alcaraz, isn't it? Carlos Alcaraz, that's it. Oh yeah, he looks like Lance Stroll. It's the heavy set eyes and the thick eyebrows that really do it. You'd probably be able to tell the difference when they speak because one of them is clearly Spanish and the other one is not. <laughs> But when you're when you're watching them on TV, yes. playing tennis against each other, you'd be like, "So, who's who?" Yeah. But anyway, we'll move on from disparaging Lance Stroll's ability in Formula One to uh, Red Bull. I haven't really got a question for this one, but it's probably worth just at least mentioning. They gave us another show of dominance. Do we reckon that they can win every race from here on out? even with the changing conditions, differing pit strategies and chaos all round, they still came out on top. Do we think they've got it in them to bag everything from here on out? Yes. Which driver? Max Verstappen. He's um, unbeatable at the minute. No matter what you throw at him, he just has an answer for it. Yeah. Rain... uh, almost sort of secondary pit stop strategy to Perez, chaos all round, safety cars. He just, like, water off a duck's back. It just doesn't seem to matter. And that's admirable, really, as as an ability to have to sort of shrug everything off and just focus on the task at hand is exactly what you want from a racing driver, a sports person, someone as a team member. That is perfect. I think Red Bull would be silly to sort of get themselves to the point where they fritter away that opportunity to go on one of the most dominant runs 
of any F1 team. Because if it's well within their reach to win every race in the season, that would mean they've every race remaining in that season, that would mean they have won every race in this season. Yeah. I mean, even if you look back to like Hamilton dominance, there were still races where he'd have an off off day. I mean, they were they were rare. Yeah. But he still had off moments. You okay, you have seen that maybe in qualifying with Verstappen, but he always then manages to get back up there. I mean, nine races, nine wins in a row. Yeah. He's at the minute pretty unstoppable. I mean, I can't quite remember how many days exactly, but it's been over a hundred days. It's a hundred and twenty, he... I believe, since he last essentially lost an F1 race. Yeah. Um, yeah. He hasn't won a race. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely yeah, 120 days essentially since Azerbaijan, which is a hell of a long span of time. And yeah, when you look back at like Hamilton's most dominant year, you could argue, I don't think, um, yeah, 2020 is an interesting one to use, but there was only one, two, three moments where he wasn't on the podium. The first round in Austria, um, the Italian GP at Monza and Sakir. He wasn't at Sakir because he had COVID. Italy, Mercedes got screwed over with the red flag in the pit lane being closed and in Austria I just think it was just bad luck really and it was obviously the penalty for spinning out Albon five second penalty yes yeah. Um, but yeah he. it was like if Hamilton the point is Hamilton wouldn't even be on the podium Max Verstappen's off day is that he comes second yeah yeah or if you look at the year before 2019 which was like a conventional year and a very dominant one for Hamilton with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Assuming I've counted that correctly, eleven wins. You've still got one, two, three, four second places, two thirds, but then you've also got a fourth place in Singapore, a ninth place in Germany, a fifth in Austria, and a seventh in Brazil. There have been those moments where it hasn't gone his way on his off days, but then if you, like you said, if you look at Verstappen's off days, he he hasn't had them this year. If he's been off, he's been in second. No other driver is calling an off day P2 or P is calling P2 an off day. It's incredible, really. Um, anyway, we'll move on from that sort of race recap, which was pretty chaotic, really. Obviously, we saw Logan Sargent crashing out, retiring through the tail end of the race. There was a lot to really unpack from it. I think we've done it in an interesting way, picking through the teams in that regard. Um, but when it comes to individual drivers, who have been your winners and your spinners? We'll start with your winner. My winner has, or is, Pierre Gasly. I mean, started 12th, came third. That's pretty good going. I mean, Alpine's strategy was very good. They were on top of the changing weather conditions, pitting him almost immediately. And that really helped him climb the order and then maintain it. And throughout the race, he had signs on the back of him fighting him and he coped really well. Like you said earlier, he had to fight for that uh, third place. It wasn't easy. He was constantly sort of defending 
from others challenging him and he coped with it all really well almost it's almost like going back to when he won in Monza with uh, Carlos then in the McLaren and him in the Alfa Tauri and always had him always had Carlos on the back of him trying to get to him trying to overtake him and he just managed to keep his cool and it's paid off and he's got a very nice haul of points to go with it yeah, it's it was certainly the result he needed this season, and he hadn't done too badly towards the end of the first half either, because of course he had that P three in the sprint, so he's definitely sort of found that form. And again, like you said, it was that magic and that energy from that Monza win was definitely back. If you listen back to his radio call on his helmet afterwards, it was incredible. I've solved it. What the sprint. I watched on my phone in Formula E whilst I was at Formula E, so didn't really fully watch all of it. Uh, I then watched this race on your phone, but at Silverstone, so it was kind of half again watching it, not watching it, and he came third again. So I guess what we've learned is that I need to go to a race weekend and sort of half watch a Formula One race half watch what I'm actually meant to be watching and Pierre Gasly does really well uh, I don't think I was watching too, paying too much attention to the sprint I feel like I was something on the Belgium GP weekend so that sort of tallies from my end what was I doing on the Saturday of the Belgium Grand Prix I'm fairly certain I had something on because there could be a theory here you were on holiday in Croatia I was I was correct British uh, GP that weekend, Belgium Grand Prix. I was I was on holiday in Croatia for the sprint. Okay, but also Timo was out. And equally, winding the clock back further to Gasly's win in Monza in twenty twenty, I was at Hampton Court Palace for the Concourse of Elegance, which is where I'm going next weekend. Is where you're well, this weekend rather. Um, this- yeah, it's just something dawned on me that is literally less than five days away. Um, but yeah, I list, ended up listening to the commentary of Pierre Gasly's maiden win there. So it seems to be that when we're not really paying attention to the Grand Prix or have another thing on, Gasly does well. So um, next year, should we just stop doing the podcast, not watch the Grand Prix, and Gasly's world champion? <laughs> Pretty much. Well, if we go back to we were both at Brands Hatch watching the Masters Historic and the Monaco GP was on and Alpine got their third with Esteban Ocon. There's certainly something to to correlate from this is sort of when we're not paying attention, there's a sort of a an uptick in performance from some notable teams. Um want to pay us to go to various race weekends on a well they could pay on. us to sort of come to whatever race weekend they're at and just sort of half pay attention. Yeah. Just sort of half watch the race from the LP hospitality hut with some lunch would be all right. Um, anyway, my winner is Alex Albon. And I think it's pretty obvious reasons. It was still an absolutely stellar drive and a pretty good weekend all round from Albon, really, with fantastic practices and good qualifyings. And just 
decent in race performance. Like, I think, yeah, I'll agree with Williams. There's much more that could have come from that. But equally, at the same time, points-wise, that has done him a world of good. And um, what it's now done is opened up a gap from him back to Nico Hulkenberg on nine. He's now six points clear on 15. So it does mean that even if Hulkenberg sort of piecemeals his way back towards Albon, he's got a fairly substantial lead. So it's all good things for him. I don't know whether he'll be able to catch sort of the 36s and 37s of Piastri, Gasly and Ocon ahead of him. He'd need some fairly incredible performances to do that towards the end of the season, but I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility. Um, So we'll see what happens there, but otherwise this was a good weekend to be Alex Albon. When it comes to spinners, you've gone for a fairly obvious choice. Sure, Claire. I mean, his race just got from went from bad to worse, didn't it? I mean, the awful pit stop where Ferrari weren't ready for his tyres. Then obviously suffered floor damage that subsequently saw him being overtaken twice in the course of three corners, and then he couldn't fight in AlphaTauri, which eventually just left Ferrari with the decision to retire him when Liam Lawson was sort of managed to very nicely overtake him. Mm, it was, should, a Ferrari shouldn't be fighting an Alpha Tauri. Yeah. The, the Liam Lawson overtake on Charles Leclerc was incredible. Um, I have to say it was a really nicely set up move. And I think, yeah, it, I don't want to detract from Lawson's ability to pull that off, but at the same time, you sort of expect more from Charles Leclerc and Ferrari. Admittedly, it was hampered uh, by floor damage, so he really wasn't running with a full car. So, yeah, that's that's fair, I'd say. It could have been a far better weekend from Charles as well as from Ferrari. My spinner is someone, is uh, Stroll. We've already mentioned him. I don't think we need to dive back into why. I think it's quite obvious at this point. Other drivers worth a mention, though. Eddie May, why don't we, you talk us through this one? It's been me quite a lot. You, you, why don't you say something? Um, yeah, I just thought I'd put Liam Lawson in there, mainly for what we've already said um, throughout this podcast, really. Um, to come in to a race weekend only do one free practice, go into one of the most demanding races on the calendar for a driver uh, with sort of the banking and whatnot, very sort of hard on their on their bodies. And okay, it's not it's not a point scoring position or anything like, like that, but you see that overtake on Charles Leclerc. And it was just, it was just so well thought out that I remember seeing and thinking, wow, <laughs> you know, it was to keep it, to have the mindset already to keep it that clean and well thought out was, I don't know, it was just. It was remarkable that a driver that sort of, young and fresh into his career was able to put together that yeah. that drive and that result I think yeah and to pull it off with the aplomb that he did is certainly worth a mention I think arguably there might have been a bit more performance to come out of the Alpha Tauri possibly hampered by the team and the conditions but overall it's a pretty stellar performance the other driver you mentioned on the list is Perez why so? 
this one's sort of the opposite. I just, I just, it was not really for the right reasons. Um, I mean, he had the better strategy, obviously, at the start of the race, um, which he, he pitted almost immediately, didn't he? Uh, when it started raining, whilst they left Verstappen out, which then really just bumped him up the grid. But then mm. he couldn't keep Verstappen behind him. And then obviously Verstappen then sort of got the preferential treatment the second time around of pitting. But it just throughout the race, there was just sort of little mistakes that just it just got messier and messier. Obviously, then when it, the rain started then coming back down, he um went off wide and let Fernando Alonso over get him for second and then um when they pitted for four wets he then what hit the wall coming into the pits and then was given a five second penalty for speeding through the pit lane which then Mm. obviously which is the reason then why he actually finished the race third but was in fourth yeah messy there was a lot of lot of problems for Perez that sort of came out of the weekend and I think that he could have avoided them with a little more I don't say due care and attention but yeah there's could have been better could have been a lot worse I think at the same time he could have suffered a lot more caused himself a lot more problems and tumbled a lot further back down the order so yeah I think it's it's fair that he sort of gets that sort of middling grade in this regard Speaking of grades, however, we'll move on to our race-by-race race predictions and what we predicted going into the Dutch Grand Prix. Timo, in his absence, did submit predictions. Uh, everyone predicted a Max Verstappen pole, so everyone scores points. Obviously, last week we had Immy Cousins on as well as a guest, um, and she also predicted Verstappen for pole. And everyone predicted a Verstappen win, so everyone's got at least two points. Uh, I predicted Norris third, Norris second, Perez third. No points there. Uh, Timo predicted Perez second, Leclerc third. No points there. You predicted Leclerc second, Alonso third. No points oh, there. So close with the, Alon- over the Alonso. Very close there. And uh, Imi predicted Norris second, Leclerc third. So no points there either. When it comes to fastest laps, no one scored points there at all. Uh, I predicted Verstappen, nothing. Timo working with Sainz until it happens, which was nothing. You predicted Russell, which didn't happen and uh amy predicted hamilton which also didn't happen really, really did get past this lap. that is a good question i was just about to ask myself that fernando alonso yeah and then when it comes to our wild predictions uh i predicted a verstappen grand slam which we didn't get because he didn't get fastest lap and he didn't lead every lap of the race um timo however predicted 40 plus overtakes and this comes to a little note that i've written in the notes which is 186 overtakes in the race 63 of them in lap three alone so somehow timo predicted that one gets his point for it and thankfully he's not here to be smug about it you predicted norris out finishes hamilton so you score nothing and um Amy predicted sergeant p11 12 finish which could have happened yeah but it didn't, so no points there. So Timo is the only one to actually outscore anyone this week. Everyone scores two points apart from Timo with three. So yeah, that's our predictions review. 
quickly dip into the drivers as well, because that's actually quite an interesting one to see how the battle there has played out. I'll just shuffle up to the easier to read graph where it's just positions wise, because when you look at it coming out of Belgium, Gasly has made a leap of two places from 12th to 10th with his podium, which has relegated Ocon down one and Piastri down one. Um, and equally, uh, when you look at Sainz, he's had a good weekend in the Netherlands, which has seen him leap from seventh to fifth after neither Russell nor Leclerc score points, both relegating them from fifth to sixth for Leclerc and obviously sixth to seventh for Russell. This is the second uh, race weekend in a row where Russell has actually tumbled down the order. He hit a high of fifth in Hungary and then ended up down in sixth after Belgium and now seventh after the Dutch Grand Prix. So it's all go there. And meanwhile, Alpha Tauri have two drivers in 21st and 22nd in a 20-driver championship. So congratulations to them for now having more drivers than points and two drivers in positions that don't exist in a 20-driver championship. Good on them. Um, fantastic time had by all, I'm certain. Um, interestingly, the big battle is Alonso now actually pulling a gap to Hamilton as well. They were within very much touching distance of one point after the Belgian Grand Prix, but now after the season picks back up, that gap has opened up with Hamilton on 156 and Alonso on 168. So uh, plenty still to come. Norris is in a bit of a bit of a nightmare land, really, stuck between Stroll and um, Russell at the moment, which is quite strange to see. There's a sort of big gap between his sort of line of points. So we'll see how that develops moving forwards have you anything else to add as we wrap up this week's episode no nothing at all no i said that quite tired and wearily you do indeed well that is then very much all we have time for on this week's episode um, but in the meantime you can find me on instagram and tiktok and twitter as at jesse on cars and you can also find me writing for classic car weekly we've got all sorts of interesting bits coming out i think the next thing is going to be obviously our coverage from silverstone and then it's into goodwood revival preview time which both ellie may and i are off to speaking of ellie may where can the people find you car oh, it's a very good question um you can find me doing the graphics for our Instagram page. Um, we will also be having a plethora of photos on the Instagram and TikToks, hopefully, um, of the Silverstone Festival. And we will also be having London Concours on there, or Concours of Elegance, I should say, because there are multiple Concours in London over the year. So we'll also have that out too. Plenty of exotic metals to be seen there and uh, plenty of lovely pictures to follow, no doubt. We will see you again for the preview of the Italian Grand Prix. <laughs>